If you're enjoying getting better acquainted with me and with my guests, maybe you'd like to help other people find out about the show. There's a few easy ways to do that. You can go on iTunes if you've got five minutes and leave a review saying what you think of it. That helps it get higher rankings on iTunes and stuff like that. What the show really needs is word of mouth. And in this internet age, that means liking the show's page on Facebook or retweeting it or sharing the link to all of your Facebook friends or Twitter followers, doing whatever you need to do in whatever social networking site you use. And if you don't use a social networking site, well, hey, you can just tell your friends or email your friends and tell them about what's going on. often quite sensitive and quite private becomes a bit more public sometimes some of its mystery and the power that it can have over holding you back or causing you pain can be slightly disseminated Mm. somehow hello i'm dave i'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together i need to get better please make me better i want to get better 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 acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Joanna Yates. Hello, Joe. Hello. <laughs> it's a weird one that because I have to call people what I know them as, and you're one of the people that I know first name and second name. Yeah, we don't know each other that well. How do you know me? How did you meet me? I met you through Matt Hill, and first time I met was to do with was the first time we met when you came to tell your story I think so yeah in this very place that we're in actually it was yeah and then we met several times after that obviously at different shows also at Matt's birthday at parties yeah um, yeah so the first time I met was when you came to tell your story and I can't what was the theme of that night the theme of that night was was it misunderstandings and I told a story that's actually in the first episode of Getting Better Acquainted so it's the one about in episode one about a misunderstanding that happened at Christmas and it was quite an emotional roller coaster actually. In fact, I think that telling that story at Spark was a big part of why I'm doing this project generally. Because in the feedback session, because we do, actually we should explain what Spark is. So Spark is true stories told live. It's recorded, uh, it, it happens at the Canal Cafe Theatre, which we're in now, uh, in the bar downstairs. And I was telling a true story live in front of an audience but they have a rehearsal on the Sunday before which is you're here early and you're going to do that after we've done this this conversation you give notes at the end and I think you asked you know how do I feel about like why am I telling the story and how do I feel about my mother and stuff and I thought I didn't tell it for any significant reason but when you asked that question, it set me off down a route that resulted in this, really, in, in trying to work out what I am and what I'm about at the moment. So, That's really interesting. So thanks for that. You're really uh, welcome. <laughs> thanks for sharing the story. What do you do now? What do I do now? Yeah. Well, I do two things which are quite closely connected, but my day job is I'm a psychologist, but I work in businesses, and I design and run workshops around developing skills, so they could be skills of coming up with new ideas, influencing, selling, building relationships, storytelling, presenting skills, and I also produce Spark, which is this true storytelling night, which is at the Canal Cafe Theatre, as we're saying, as well as in Brixton, and the kind of crossover between the two is that, in terms of what makes a story really compelling... It's very much central to Spark, but it's also pretty central to most of the work that I do as well. Okay, so by getting people in business to tell their stories better, that that helps them to be better business people, or is it the story of the business? It really varies, actually. I've done a number of different types of projects. I've done storytelling specifically around leadership, so thinking about what actually do you want people to be enthused or interested, or what do you want to capture people's attention to do, and how do you use a story in order to communicate that central idea to other people. So rather than going to abstract kind of bullet points and PowerPoint mode, how can you make it human, really? And then I've done lots of work with um, communicating strategy within organisations. So how do you take very dry, often very, very language-heavy, technical, strategic stuff and turn it into stuff that's human? Because ultimately, if everyone in the company doesn't get it, it's not going to happen. So I've done quite a lot of that as well. And then also, the other work I've done is with brands. So looking at, in relation to customer service, what are some of the defining stories of that brand? And therefore, how can people understand those stories and understand what the service in that culture is really about. 
Wow. Well, that's 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 really really interesting, and it kind of ties. It's nice that your your personal and your business interests are combined in that way. Yeah, no, it's really nice. It's definitely. quite rare. I, I guess it probably is quite <laughs> rare. I started off. I worked. Um, my first job was for a company called the Mind Gym. And I told the story actually of how I got my first job a while ago, but the job I did for them was designing workshops all based in psychology. They were very interactive and about 90 minutes long. And my boss, I remember one day I left my table and I came back and there was, I can't remember his first name, but McKee's book called Story on my desk, which is a script writing book. And I was like, what's that doing there? And I also thought, my God, it's got like a thousand pages. I'm never going to read that. <laughs> but interestingly, he was saying that what I was doing by writing 90 minute workshops is very much like writing a script so you've got to understand the idea of how you bring the tempo up and down how do you have a central idea how do you work with acts within that 90 minutes yeah. so it kind of triggered off my my kind of appreciation of how stories play out in all work and yeah it's kind of gone from there really and I guess if you're involved in psychology as well that's kind of getting the story behind the person do you think that this interest in true stories just came through your work or do you think it's something you've had since you you know forever no, I think it's definitely come from inside me for quite a long time. I think I feel I feel really passionately about people being able to speak and being able to say what they want to say and not feel either inhibited or just like no one wants to listen. Yeah. I suppose maybe when I was when I was younger, I always felt a little bit like I wasn't really. I know, like I couldn't really say what I wanted to say, and a little bit kind of squashed. Although I had something in me that I knew wanted to kind of express myself and I think that's in a lot of people as well and yeah definitely that, I think that's really why I love it so much and why I feel really passionately about continuing to do it because it's a lot of work as well so if we were saying just off mics before we started that this that my project's quite similar to yours and I mean I've definitely found that people more people have said yes than I thought and people are really enjoying having that space you know to talk about themselves for an hour actually a lot of people have responded really well to that but, but your, your the spark stories are around 10 minutes yeah uh, they're a little bit less I try and make them about 7 yeah, you try to be ones, brutal I yeah. do try to be brutal and the open mic stories are 5 minutes and I'm quite brutal with those that's right I've done a few open mics I really yeah. enjoy that actually because yeah. I, I find like with 5 minutes I'm sort of like well I don't prepare as much in a way because I'm like, well, it's only five minutes and I'm just an open mic, so no one's going to judge me. Actually, I think sometimes that can be almost a better way of telling a true story if yeah. you don't rehearse it beforehand. It can be. It's true. It's a it's different strange. thing. Yeah, I'm amazed. I mean, the, the, the standard and the quality of the stories that come out are really, really high. Yeah, that's true. With the open mic, it sort of depends on the... It lives or dies on the topic, doesn't it? That's the, that's the crucial thing. Whereas with the one where you curate and get all of the different speakers to come in... Yeah. You can have a more abstract concept it's and true. people will find something to connect with that, you know. Yeah, no, I think that is true, definitely. The themes are really important, I think. I think the last open mic I went to in Brixton was Parents, and that was great. Was it? Everybody had, yeah, because you weren't there, were you? I wasn't there. <laughs> everybody, everybody had something to say about their parents, so... I mean, that's the sort of, you know, I thought that was a, that was a good sort of feeling. Was it you that suggested that in the previous open mic? No, I, it was Julie. It wasn't me. There was no. somebody else who was there. She was like, we were talking about what the next theme would be, and she was like, let's do parents. I went, that's parents is good. One. Parents is really good. <laughs> I remember talking to you as well when I did the first night about podcasts, because obviously I'm a big podcast fan, yeah. and we were sort of talking about The Moth, which is a, a similar thing that happened in America, True Stories Told Live. Was that part of the inspiration for The Spark? Yeah, definitely. I discovered The Moth through another show I saw in Los Angeles, and they've been inspired by The Moth too. And then there's another one there where it's stories that have to be happened within the last two weeks or something like that. Oh, wow. America seems to be the melting pot of people telling stories. Yeah, it's kind of a cultural thing that they're more happy to talk about their so. stories, aren't they? Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, once I discovered The Moth, I was, um, and the American Life as well, I love, I love This American Life. But that, yeah. that's the thing, This American Life is an hour-long show. Yeah. The Moth is around about 15 to 20 minutes. And I think when I was talking to you about it, you sort of said, sometimes they let those, those stories go on a bit too long. Yeah, <laughs> only from my opinion. So what is it about 
a short true story that appeals to you more than long form true I, story like this one? I think. That, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I think? I mean, my all my work has been around making long things short, basically. Because oh, okay. my my work was designing ninety minute workshops, which supposedly are able to create as much value as you would get in a day. So it's all about thinking. Actually, given a subject matter like. Listening or something. What really are the bits of this that really matter, and how do you communicate them? And similarly with stories, I think that the discipline of putting it into seven to eight minutes is actually means that you get a more distilled story at the other end. I think. Oh, I'm a big believer in that, and I do yeah. think that that restriction creates better stories. I mean, in terms of even in like, because I do fiction as well, and it's the same principle. If you just if you have restrictions, often you can create much better stuff. I think so. But on. on the side of that, if somebody's telling a true story, there's a few responsibilities, I guess, they have to the truth. Mm. And sort of something I was very aware of when I did my first story is I wanted to make sure that I didn't do wrong by any of the people who were there, which can sometimes mean you, maybe you over-explain. So there, there is a good... I mean, it's important to have an ear like yourself in the rehearsal saying, well, that's not needed. And you gave me some great notes, I really appreciate it. But if you're trying to condense the truth, sometimes you lose the truth. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I've had a few times where people's stories are technically longer than the time they've had, I think. And... And there have been some that, although I say seven minutes, there have been stories that are more like 13 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you can't really stop someone, can you? I mean, if they no, start speaking. Although I kind of think that if you've agreed to tell a seven minute story, you, should, try. you should really try and tell yeah. a seven minute story or a seven or eight minute story. Yeah, I do think there are, there are some stories which probably do need a little bit longer, but then I kind of think it's a bit of a trade off between, in terms of a show, to be sit there without a break for an hour and to have sort of between five and seven people tell a story. Yeah. I kind of like that format. You don't want anyone to hog it, I agree, yeah. We could have a short, we could have the same length show and just have less people telling stories. Maybe we'll do a version like that, I think some point but I'm quite pro the shorter no I know I, like, I know and I think that's, there's a lot of value in it I, don't, I, I really enjoy the, the spark nights for that reason because of the variety and you sort of sometimes you sort of think well I'm glad that person didn't go on longer I wish that person had gone on longer but that doesn't matter you've got a taster of all of the different people and I guess you can go and talk to them afterwards and find out more about what the stories are but I do think that's a really valid point because you, there is, you do have a responsibility to the truth and it's our own stories and if we're going to tell them we want to make sure that they, they are, they're told in the way that we feel comfortable to share them yeah. so yeah I'm aware of that and it's a really strange thing as the person telling the story because when you're sort of trying to be in the moment telling the story and sort of doing I guess I mean, because I've got a theatre background, I was trying to do this sort of stuff, like emotional recall and stuff, like trying to put yourself back in the moment and be in the moment on the stage. I'm aware how pretentious it sounds to say in the moment, but I'm going to do it anyway. That, like, I remember just kind of, you had, a, a, I think, a sound cue to say, time's, time's coming up. And I remember it sort of just coming, just at the sort of pivotal moment of the story and just my mind going to kind of white, white, white blankness kind of confusion but then I I, I think I, I pulled it back but the part that had been good in rehearsal didn't I think you even said this I think afterwards like didn't happen the same way like the, the kind of pun, not punchline but the kind of emotional kind of core of it was kind of uh, changed but that's that's good I mean that's what I find about these conversations is that you can't control where they go you just have to sort of what you've got at the end that's what you've got and it was the same with the spark what I've got at the end of that is what I've got can't go back um, so if you had to choose one story about you <laughs> that sums you up what would it be? <laughs> I think there's a few really one I think was probably how I ended up getting my first job I, would imagine, I think that story says something about me, probably, which was that um, I, I went to university and I did a master's because I couldn't think what, what else to do, really. And, and I, at school, I'd done like, one of those career advice forms. And I remember it was really thick and we all sat like an exam hall to do the, do the form. And I was, that day I was feeling particularly disaffected with the world. And it said things like, do you like having taking responsibility? And I was like, no. 
I said, did you like being working on problems with other people? And I was like, no. <laughs> I said, do you like working outside? And I went, yeah. And they said, do you like, like precision tasks? And I went, yeah. And then I sat there with this careers advisor at this ridiculously expensive school that got advice to be a linesman. <laughs> and, and <laughs> Painting li- lines Linesman? <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. So anyway, after that, I was a bit like, okay, fine. But I did go to university and I did get a degree in psychology and a master in occupational psychology. And then I really, I knew I kind of wanted to work in something to do with psychology and people in the workplace and applied. But I just couldn't really think where. So I ended up doing like assessment centres for people like the police, Department of Work and Pensions. I remember looking at myself and I was like dressed up in these clothes that I own but I've never worn before or since. And I was in this sort of... Like, I don't know what you'd call it, it was like a um, compound belonging to the, to the Department of Work and Pensions where they take you to go and assess you and I had to do all these kind of problems and stuff with other people and I just left thinking, it's just not me, it's not my, it's not my life, it's definitely, I just couldn't imagine where I was going to fit in and what I was going to do and um, and then I was with a friend of mine who was helping me look for a job and she thought I should work in fashion PR. I was going, oh, I'm not sure about that either. Um, and she was helping me with my CV and I went over to her house one day and she was like, oh, one of my friends went out last night and she met this guy who has a company which is just around the corner. You should go and um, get their press and check them out. She goes like, dress up and make it fun and like, knock on the door and see what they've got. So I went to Kensington Square, which is where the mind gym is based and I knocked on the door of this white building. Somebody asked and they were like, hello. And I explained that I was interested in what they were doing and did they have any press or anything. They gave me like a little pack of press and invited me to a marketing event. And I was immediately like, this looks really cool. This looks far more like my world than all that stuff I've done before. So I went to this marketing event and I ended up sitting one-to-one with one of the founders of the company and we were doing a little exercise together that was to do with overcoming procrastination and getting something done. So I was telling him about this project that I was working on that I wanted to finish and in order to make sure that we did the things that we said we were going to do we had to swap email addresses so I got his email address and he, he took mine and, and I just got in contact with him numerous times because he wasn't very good at replying until he replied and gave me work experience and two and a half weeks later they paid me for an extra week and then I stayed there for three and a half years and I still work with them today but the reason I think it's kind of says something about me is because I'm always one to do things slightly differently I would never go in the normal route <laughs> I would say yeah, going the slightly different route you appeared you, you, you found yourself in the final place and you didn't know how you really got there yeah yeah exactly and, and also it said something about me because I really knew that that was the right place for me to be as soon as I got there and I really knew the other places weren't and I think you have to stick with your instincts, really. Yeah. I mean, you, cause you because you do the night, the spark night, you've told a lot of true stories, I imagine. So you're, you're telling your life in public. How do you find that rebounds? Like, does that have any effect on your life and on your work? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm, I'm telling my life in public, too, at the moment. Yeah. It's a pressing concern. I think it does. I think, actually, sharing stories can be a real catalyst, actually. Because once something that's often quite sensitive and quite private becomes a bit more public. Sometimes some of its mystery and the power that it can have over holding you back or causing you pain can be slightly disseminated mm. somehow. And I've seen quite a few people come through and tell stories at times when they've been having difficulties and it's been one of the factors that's kind of triggered them to, to somehow go through it. It's really interesting. Well, I mean, I think I'm probably one of those people in a way. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly finding that being honest and open about like if you're honest and open people respond well to it it doesn't like you tell a story on stage like I thought with my story that I told I thought oh you know this is gonna spoil the mood or you know I mean it's not a funny story it wasn't a happy story and it wasn't it was you know not 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 one that makes you sound kind of I don't know cool or, or I don't know, masculine or any of these things. It was very emotional and personal. And I thought the audience, you know, it surprised me because they didn't laugh at the few parts I thought were funny. But that's because they were responding to the truth really well. And I got some really good reactions afterwards. So I think that's a really nice element of the spark, the way you encourage everyone to talk. Afterwards, about the stories and sort of share stories afterwards. It's a really kind of. I hope I think people do as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
yeah, I think it's really because it does when you sit and listen, it immediately brings up stuff and you resonate with some stories and less so with other stories and immediately triggers off your own little thoughts. And it's it is really nice if people do share. Well, there can be a dangerous area too. I found and, and my story brought up a. A, a, an experience in one of the other tellers that they hadn't addressed and then they were talking to me and my my, and my dad about it and it was very you know you, you don't always want to open a, a, a complicated box especially in you know when you've told your own story and it's a, you know you've had a couple of drinks afterwards and then it's kind of you know it suddenly the world turns on a spins on an axis and you're in a really serious conversation with someone you don't know no I know I do I'm quite aware of the whole because there's a real there is a responsibility to be had when you ask people to share their personal stories mm. and, and yeah you, you send them out there and sometimes yeah you know, someone's quite well-meaning or either their own memory or their own response can, can be yeah it's pretty emotional territory really it's yeah. definitely sensitive stuff yeah big stuff is there a negative side to sharing and being because a lot of people I guess it's kind of cultural in, in the UK is the fear is that if you show your hand then you're opening yourself up to weakness do you know what I mean like if people know who you are completely then they can manipulate you maybe or they can or there's the the area of work versus life in that there may be things that you do in your life that you can't admit to doing at work. Oh, definitely. And that's that's an interesting area that I'm negotiating with through this yeah. podcast. And I think I'm, I've got a very base, definite line on it. I know exactly, because I can edit this, but you can't edit a, a true story. I mean, I guess you guys have to decide which ones you share on the podcast. Do you have that kind of... Do you, do you steer away from stories that might harm someone? Well, I, just, I leave it up to them as individuals yeah. to decide whether they want to share the story. And there are definitely some people who, for professional reasons, don't want their stories to be recorded or published yeah. at all. And I completely understand that. And also, I do feel a degree of responsibility, definitely, to people who maybe aren't aware of just how, how much public, public, how public something can become if it becomes on the web as well. Yeah. And I do think it's really important to make sure people are aware of that stuff. Yeah. Also, I think what's interesting, and actually to do with my work, I do do quite a bit to do with that, but by, by sharing or by bearing a little bit of yourself and what you really feel or who you really are, it's, it does make you vulnerable, but it, but it also can be part of our strength. Brilliant, yeah, I And agree. I think that, I think increasingly, I don't know, maybe in Britain, we're more guarded, perhaps, historically, but the more, more people, I think, uh, maybe the older we get, we start to appreciate that by making ourselves vulnerable, it's a strength rather than a weakness. Yeah, I think that's true. The older I get, I feel that. But I also think maybe it's sort of Facebook and Twitter and things like that that are changing it as well that since yeah. everybody's sharing everything yeah, like that because it, it, it kind of gets addictive doesn't it like when I first came, went on Facebook I was like I'm never going to say anything about my emotions that was like my rule because like, I, but I've, I think I've broken that rule a few times now you know and I think it gets it gets that way certainly on Twitter I find myself tweeting more and more like some of the like so you respond in kind don't you so there's other people other people are tweeting quite openly and you end up mm. responding to that and doing it yourself and I guess that's what the spark's like yeah I think so I think yeah cause I like it if, um, it's nice if people can come to the show and listen to other people before they go as part of it yeah it gives you a sense of what I came to it, it once before I did it and I was yeah, glad to have done that yeah I think it really helps yeah it's not really like anything else unless people have heard the mock or something like that yeah, no. to imagine exactly what it's going to be yeah it's it, and it, I mean, and it's. I think it's a, a little bit addictive as well. Like now, I've done it like a couple of times. That's why I'm always down there open mics when I can make it. So I'm like, oh, brilliant. That's great. That's my policy with my guests on the show: is is that what they choose to remain in get, remains in, and they can make the decisions about whether it's appropriate for their employers or not. But I do tend to remind, like, say, are you sure? And then they say, yeah, and or no, and then. You know, sometimes I'm surprised by what people will, will will have happily go out there into the world, but maybe they're the wise ones. Maybe they're the ones who are going to. Maybe it's good, like you say, going to be their strength. Maybe, yeah. But also, maybe I think sometimes 
people, well, Facebook, I suppose, is one testament to it, but people seem to like to have these opportunities to be a bit more public. Yeah. And also, I think the more it gets public, that hopefully the less shocking these things are. Like, that, what I often think with super injunctions, for example, is if we just got rid of them, then we'd all just understand that celebrities are like everybody else and they have affairs, and that affairs are tragic for the people involved, but not really any of the rest of our business. And yeah. do you know what I mean? But because it's so, because it's so kind of hidden, they focus on it so much more by putting these these barriers, you know, yeah. and then it, it blows yeah, up in their face. It's very similar to stories, like when you have something that you're ashamed of or something that you're just not very. I don't know, you just try not to think about it. The more you push it away, the more power you give it. Yeah. And when you tell it to other people, it can be such a relief, especially if they're like, I relate to that, and I've had a similar experience. That, That can be... That can really change. Because I think initially we think these things that we're ashamed of or we want to hide make us apart from other people, but that makes you realise that actually it makes you closer to them. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's definitely my, my feeling on it. Is there a relationship between psychology and, although, I mean, I think you've already answered this to a certain extent, but maybe you can expand on it. Is there a relationship between psychology and the spark do you use your psychology skills when you're giving notes I guess is what I'm asking yeah I do not in a, I'm not in any way a therapist no. it's very, really important that you realise that but, okay. but yeah I use the principles and stuff that I work with in companies in there yeah because feedback is something to do with performance management that I've always had to give workshops on and a lot of the spark is about talking to people about the stories and giving feedback on some of my own thoughts and I definitely do in that respect use it. and listening which I think is I don't know if I really learned that from psychology but I think really listening to people is so powerful and such something that people are increasingly just don't do mm. and I definitely try and listen and I think that that is an important part of it as well it helps to the more you listen to somebody, somebody, there's a quote I heard once, which is, the better the quality of the way that you listen, the better the quality of how someone else thinks. So, and I do believe in that. that if, you're really, if someone's really tuned into you, then you can actually, more stuff comes out. So yeah, those things I'm very aware of in relation to psychology, I think. And also, obviously, the whole, like, where it becomes sensitive, which is the, the links of... Like why somebody wants to tell a particular story and how that story, just like the defining story of a brand, we have defining stories of us as human beings and the ones which have shaped us to be the way that we are. And it's interesting for me what stories people choose to tell. And I suppose the other part of psychology that I use with it is just ethically, like just being aware of, I don't know, just making sure in my, to my own consciousness that people are, feel safe doing what they're doing and they're in the right place to do it have you ever accepted a story through email and then when they've come to the um, rehearsal have you then realised that it was that they were too raw about the story and had to say to them no, no. it's interesting actually I find a lot of stories people want to tell are 5 to 10 years plus old and I yeah. think the reason for that is by the time people come and are willing to do it they've had a chance to process it I've had, I haven't had that situation, I don't think. I had one recently, actually, an amazing lady who told a story about um, a bereavement, and it was pretty raw, but she did do it, and I think it actually really helped her do it, but we did spend quite a lot of time together to, to get her feeling confident and happy and sell it, and I'm really glad she told it, but that's probably one of the rawest. But then it's, a fu- it's a funny thing, because... My story was, you know, over 15 years old, and I didn't think it was raw. Like, I'm, you know, blasé about it. I'm like, what's the theme? What stories in my life have I got that can fit the theme? I really want to do a spark story. Oh, yeah, that one, that old one, that'll be fine. And then it was the opposite experience I had, where I thought it wasn't raw, and then I think it was, yeah. Yeah, well, I think you... I, you it's interesting the process of because our life is like a big stream of consciousness and all of a sudden you decide to dig out a little chunk and turn it into a story and the mere process of doing that means you examine our experiences in a way that 
uh, you don't really do unless you're about to share them publicly and talk about them with somebody else and yeah I think the connections and the feelings and like you say like genuinely reconnecting how you felt at the time in front of an audience of people is a really quite a profound thing to do it's emotional. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, and it's weird because that's that's kind of what I try to do in this show now. Is like my rule is I've got to be, you know, personally I've got to be very responsive and tr- truthful myself. Because, like you say, the the quality of what you give as a listener and as a other person in a conversation reflects the way that the other person speaks. And so you get better stories if you are open yourself in a kind of exchange sense. But I've also been doing trips back to places I used to live uh, to interview people there and I've also been doing sort of specials about my experience and that's been exactly what you say having like opening doors that I didn't really haven't opened for a while and then examining them and like you say for an audience and that changes it and makes it easier to deal with I think with an audience there than it is I think on my own but that might be a personal kind of I don't know if that's a general human trait it might be just me I don't know that's really interesting there's something about um, the performance element of it that means that you kind of have to get it it holds you accountable to actually get it out there whereas if it's just to ourselves it's a bit of an ongoing process Mm. it's like when have I actually done it <laughs> well you don't pay attention like you say to your conscious to your inner monologue I don't pay attention to what I'm thinking but suddenly when I'm recording it every word is something I'm thinking about it's kind of really it is it's the focus it's the focus on it on these things because we spend an awful lot of our time distracting ourselves from uncomfortable stuff and things that we're maybe not so proud of or yeah <laughs> it makes it sound like the whole it's very it's all very heavy isn't there's it? lots of funny stories and lots of uh, engaging like yeah, it's, just very it's not human, just yeah it's kind of Sometimes the funniest stuff is comes out the hardest stuff. I mean, a story about That's happiness right. will always come out of a story about sadness, or a story about. Hilarity often comes out of something going wrong. <laughs> well, that, and that's true because I mean, the specific note is you're not supposed to, you shouldn't do a stand up routine no. and you shouldn't tell a poem. They seem to be the two things that people do that you don't necessarily want them to do. I don't know. I don't, it's, this open mic one is usually these conversations come out, but yeah, quite a lot of people want to tell poems or, yeah. or do something rap the, or something like that. The thing is, though, I mean, because I, I, I have written po- I don't write poetry anymore but I have written poetry and I, I know people who write poetry and I think there's so few opportunities for poets to get their words out that they just hear yeah they just hear open mic and they're like oh we've got a captured audience no one will be able to stop us I mean you get it sometimes at, um, even at music open mics when it's like supposed to be playing a song people will tell poems sometimes and uh, sometimes that works but you know it works better in a music context I think than in a spark context yeah. it, it just stands out so badly in spark yeah they're not it's just not the same kind of thing at all when you tell a poem you do a poem and you prefer people not to read as well don't you I've seen a few people read stuff I had notes but I didn't read uh, the first one but I try not to have too many notes now yeah I think the plan is with Brixton anyway is to get it to the point where no one has any notes definitely but it's a real it kind of has to be a bit in stages because initially people are just sort of getting what you're doing and then you just sort of want to make it as possible for as many people as possible and yeah eventually I like no one's got notes and here I started off being like everyone has to write it down you've got to read it and now I again I want people, I'd like to move people away from having notes and increasingly some shows no one will have any notes I don't want it to be a barrier which is why I'll never say that it's absolutely obligatory that nobody has any notes because we've had people speak who I know wouldn't have spoken if they yeah. had any notes so and I think it's more valuable to hear them than it's better not for them not to have any notes well that's the other element isn't it because you want to get traditionally these kind of things and the moth is very much like this writers musicians actors and people like that gravitate to those events and that's great they're really good at telling stories and they're just as interesting as other human beings fine but the, the, the point of the spark is hopefully I think it, to get people who aren't like that up yeah. and speaking isn't it I think it is yeah I mean the both do seem to have some people who are not from yeah. those backgrounds but the, there does seem to be a lot of people who are and you know I really like 
I really like hearing from people who just happen to have had an amazing story to tell and don't necessarily have any skill or ability in being able to tell it or maybe are really naturally gifted at telling it but are prepared to share it. It's really important for me that because it goes back to that that thing about I think it's interesting the audience I find are they respond much better to someone who's a bit raw around the edges and a bit rough around the edges in their, yeah. their tail than they do to one that's incredibly polished and perfect well it's realism I think it, it feels is. more real if somebody is, yeah. is, is a little bit less less polished you're right I, I suppose it's a bit closer so I, if I'm sitting in the audience going god that's really scary if someone's up there kind of making do and obviously doing brilliantly I'm, it's closer to me as well it's more relatable yeah it's the underdog thing I guess you, yeah. you're willing them to, to get it out yeah. yeah, I mean the last one, the, the Brixton one. I went to parents. I think it was one of the most recent podcasts you've released. Actually, was a guy who sort of stood up, and it was that day that the end of his story had happened. You know, like that day is when the end of his story had happened, and that's the sort of thing that you. That that, that was great. You know, somebody getting up. I mean, maybe he was maybe he was a writer. I don't know, but it felt really real and raw and true, and actually. Two of the stories had had something where that day the final end of the story had happened. Yeah. I wonder whether the open mic stuff maybe creates more of that because I know these stories here do tend to be older. They tend to be slightly more distant. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's quite like there's something very immediate about the Brixton one because the opportunity's there. Because you can stand up that night. Yeah. You might not be intending to do anything, but all of a sudden you're like, I've seen people in the audience sitting there scribbling notes because they arrived and they're like, didn't know what it was coming to, and now I want to tell the story, and now I'm thinking about what I want to say. You just need a few people to start it off, don't you? And then it's like it, it builds up momentum, and then there's an avalanche. It does. You know, it's, it's really amazing. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a really nice experience being there for that. Um, so you trained as a psychologist, but you didn't want to be a therapist. You, you made it very clear the distinction. Why not? Why didn't you want to be a therapist? I, I didn't. I wanted to work with people who. I knew I wanted to work with people who were generally well but wanted to do better, um, as opposed to people who were really struggling. And that was just, I think, purely for my. I just thought that I would thrive better in that environment. And also, I'm really interested in business, so I knew I wanted to work in a commercial environment. I didn't really want to work in like a hospital or anything like that. And some of the things that they kind of taught us in our degree just sounded like the, the scope for improvement in some people's lives is very, very small. And I, so there's not so many rewards in, not so many in that rewards, sort of yeah, which I, mean, I think it's amazing that people do do that <laughs> stuff. And there's lots of people I think who are probably really well suited to doing that, but I don't think I would have been the best well suited to it. I think I'm much better suited to what I do. <laughs> and do, do, you think, do you think that therapy works? Do you think, I definitely think yeah. therapy works, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had people on the show now that, yeah, who say, well, one person who said it definitely worked for him, and I mean, I, I'm very scared of the idea of therapy. I'm sort of doing this show instead of doing therapy, which is a weird choice. It's a weird choice, but I mean, I guess a lot of people are suspicious of therapy. I mean, is it? Do you think that there's bad therapy and good therapy? I mean, is no, it? No, I think there's. I don't think there's bad therapy and good therapy. I think there's bad therapists and okay. good therapists. Absolutely. Psychology is full of different schools of thought, and there are very different approaches to therapy. Like you can go to an, an analyst or a union um, analyst. Yeah. People have a completely different approach to somebody who's more humanistic or person-centered. But yeah, I mean, I've had therapy in my life, and I can honestly say that from two from very different perspectives. But it's all about what you bring to it, and it's not dissimilar to this stuff. It's like yeah. I don't know. It, it, I guess it. It is scary initially. It was definitely scary initially because it's sort of looking at things that you haven't really, haven't really chosen to look at. But for me, I think it's, it's been amazingly positive. I feel really, really lucky to have the opportunity to do it. Well, that's good. I mean, I, I know some people who've had positive therapy experiences and some people who've had negative ones. And I think, it, yeah, you, like you say, it does depend on therapists. I mean, I don't know. I mean... There's a lot of when right when I've read about Freud right and his his thinking, you know sometimes you read about these kind of big theorists of therapy and you think maybe they needed a good therapist. You know what I mean? Like I I I wonder sometimes if some of Freud's theories come more from his own way of thinking rather than from what what is there in the world. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> 
I think that was one of his principles was as well. Was it? Well, there you go. <laughs> I think so. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, for him to have inspired, to have come up with the concept of psychoanalysis. Yeah, um, I, I don't deny he's a brilliant thinker. But I, would, I think in order to have come up with it, he must have initially... His experience of himself is pretty integrally linked to that, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah he studied a lot of middle age from wherever. But yeah, no, I think that I'm sure quite a lot of it comes out of his own projection. You can't really escape these things, projection, kind of transference, all these mad... No, no, I mean, and I think the older you get as well, I, the older I get, the more I'm... When I was younger, I was much more inclined to completely dismiss Freud's theories I think because I was scared of the ramifications of them I think I'm uh, I'm more comfortable with complexity as I get older and just accept you know that sort of thing where, whereas when you're younger you want everything to be really simple and black and white and you know you dismiss things completely no it was pretty much well interestingly in my entire undergraduate degree we learnt nothing about Freud he was just considered like just this sort of slightly wacky alternative thinking being and not very central to psychology because psychology is a science in terms of how it's taught yeah. because you can't test any of his stuff really they just didn't even bother looking at it so who was the who was the big sort of what was the big direction that you were t- sort of taught um, there wasn't really anyone any one person to be honest there we just get talk about the different schools of thought so you understand cognitive psychology which right. is understanding thought processes memory learning all that kind of stuff now that's the thing that I'm now thinking is definitely something I need to develop cognitive behavioural therapy uh, is that like, yeah. it's like where you have to think about how you react how you act in, in situations mm. and relearn how to react is that right am I getting yeah, that right well, I, my understanding of it is probably pretty basic but is, is it's all about understanding a thought that leads to the behaviour right, and how if right. you can catch the thought then you can change the behaviour so that's right. if it's a fear or if it's a because so often you just find yourself behaving in a way that, you, and then you, 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 you don't understand why you're behaving that way that's the thing well it's very it's like the um, the NHS has put a lot of money into CBT because it's got quite a lot of proof that it works Whereas an awful lot of therapy is therapy. Because actually, I think it's... And I remember reading a study about it. It was, it was less to do with the type of therapy you did and more to do with the individual and yourself as to whether it worked or not. So I think, to be honest, I think an awful lot of it just comes down to compassion. And I think if that's there, then things can shift. Well, I, that's really interesting that you say that. Because, I, I mean, I guess that's, that's where I'm trying to get to in terms of the way I understand my family history or the way I understand myself is to try and be, like you say, compassionate and empathetic and try and put myself in other people's shoes and stuff like that. It's been, I don't know, I did, um, interestingly, from the point of view of the story I did in this spot, I've done a couple of conversations, three conversations now with my mum for this show. So that was very intense and interesting experience. Um, there's a little teaser for a future episode. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, probably. So the other thing that's really interesting, actually, is there's a type of meditation which is called metabhavna, which technically means loving kindness. But it's all about the same kind of thing. It's, it's, it's being able to accept things as they are and let them just be. It's, it sounds a bit hippie, but the first thing you do is draw to mind yourself and how you are today. And you just sort of allow things, and it might be that you feel one thing or another, but just to let it be. And then you draw to mind a good friend, and you just kind of experience what it's like to have them in your mind. And then you draw to mind someone you hardly know, and then you draw to mind someone you have difficulties with, like, and you sit with that feeling of wherever it brings up. And it's actually, it's all about, it's all about acceptance, just letting things be. It's really powerful. No, it's, just, it's a weird thing, isn't it? I mean, it's when you sort of talk about acceptance one of the sort of forming form, forming moments in my when I was a young teenager I guess about 12 I remember accepting mum if you're listening listen to the whole of this sentence rather than the beginning of the sentence but I remember sort of sitting on the stairs and accepting that I hated my mother and that was the first step towards not hating my mother like actually it's weird that, that, that then by the time I was 18 I had well I thought I dealt with everything and then I came to Spark and had to redeal with it all again but 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 but, but no I mean that was a something I learned then when I was 12 is that something you if you admit the really horrible thought that you've got in your head out loud then suddenly 
can change. Yeah, it changes it. It changes it. It's really powerful. Is therapy a process or a way of finding an end result? I mean, that's the the thing I always think is the problem with it. I think it's quite hard to define what you might want with the end result. Yeah. Because I think it probably changes through the process. But I, but ultimately, I think it's just about it's about being able to live true to that bit of you inside that's, that kind of knows what it wants to do, but it's overridden by all the other things that are in our head and we're told to do or not told to do or we should do. Or really must do I think it's just about tuning into what makes us us yeah because I mean I guess the, the, the fear some people have about therapy is that once you've unpicked the things that need to be unpicked when will it stop do you know what I mean the, the way sort of therapy can go is that you, then you unpick the next bit and you, and you become I, I guess the, the criticism people have in the modern world is that therapy makes us very self-obsessed and I guess that, that could be a, that's the kind of criticism that people might make if they heard about I don't think if they go to the spark but if they hear about the spark they might go why do I want to hear a load of people just talking about themselves some people do occasionally most people I talk to about spark go oh that sounds great I really want to come and occasionally people are like God, isn't that really boring listening to other people tell their stories? And I'm always so surprised when people have that reaction. And they never have it once they've been doing the show, actually. They always really love it. Yeah, I mean, it does sound totally self indulgent to stand on stage and tell your innermost thoughts to yeah. strangers. Well, that's how people feel about this show as well. They're like, some people are like, yeah, I get it. But a lot of people are like, well, why do I want to listen to other people talk about their lives? And I'm like, well, because other people's lives are interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and we listen to celebrities in everyone's lives all the time, listen to stories about them. But I suppose we think they're accomplished and we might gain something from listening to them. There's lots of different forms of an accomplishment and, and experience. And in a way, it's a class issue. Celebrities, by their nature, are very rich, generally, and are distant from everyday life. And, and, and we're not hearing the stories of the people who are living everyday life. And I, I find it hard because... I mean, I, I say it's a class issue, but most of my friends are generally middle class. It's quite hard to get a... I don't get any dustmen on this show so far. I mean, if I meet a dustman and get on with him, then I'll happily have him on the show. But you know what I mean? Find <laughs> one first. Is that something that you sort of are aware of when you're doing... Because I'm aware of my own prejudices when I do this show, because I always end up talking about class. But do I mean, you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It comes from being a, a middle class person who had working class friends at school. So I'm very, very aware of this. And also my dad, my dad was a, when he went into the army, so he had a classless existence to a certain extent where he, and so that informed his thinking and his politics. And I guess my mum's a social worker, so there's always been lots of different kinds of people that are talked about in the house, even if they weren't coming round. <laughs> but do you find it's hard to get, how do you outreach that work because people who listen to podcasts they're generally middle class aren't they I mean let's face it and people who come to theatre middle class too so well it is in a very middle fancy pants area yeah it's little Venice in uh, in London I did pretty much start with um, all my friends because those are the only people I can think that might come initially so I guess it yeah I am very aware of that and I I, I like to try and encourage as many I meet a lot of, I meet people all the time I'm just interested in talking to people and I try and find as many different people as possible who are willing to do it and the, the Brixton Open Mic I guess is a way of combating yeah. that because there's, there's people in that audience who didn't know that there was going to be true stories they just happened to be sitting in that co- yeah. cafe so. I mean that was partly why I chose to go to Brixton because it's about the most opposite you can get from the little Venice yeah. so that yeah that was a bit of it I do quite a lot of work for a charity called St Ethelburgers which is uh, kind of centre it's all about interfaith work and peace and reconciliation and stuff and I've done lots of events with them and I meet people from all over the world a lot of people who've come here as refugees or done different things and, and that for me is partly trying to also have a little bit more broader scope they're some of the best they're some of the stories I really enjoy the most I think from Spark is when, when it's people who they're in because London's good for that but there are a lot of people in London who didn't start in London We've had amazingly complicated stories before they got here. Well, interestingly, at Samba Spark is going to be with a charity, and they're based in Portobello Road, which is like half a mile away from Little Venice. But this charity works with people with literacy and numeracy, and I've met people there who have never went to school, they're like nearly 60 now, and people who've been learning to read and write in the last 
couple of years or the last five years. And we're going to work with a group of people there and find the stories for December Spark and hopefully have to bring them here and get them to tell their stories. Fantastic. Should be really good. And they are a fascinating bunch, amazing, amazing people from all over the place. That's yeah. amazing. So I am very aware of the fact that it's quite it's quite a middle class thing, but I do try and sort of have a little bit of a broader span and at least because I think it's it's a really it's a really useful thing. I mean the interfaith stuff, storytelling's really useful. I did a workshop recently which was about using stories to communicate something to people outside of your immediately faith group. So I had a group of imams, rabbis and priests all wow. in the same room. It was so interesting. That would be, I, I, that would be amazing. <laughs> and I got them all thinking about who do they want to connect with so I had one priest who was like I find it really difficult to talk to young kids and especially the hoodie ones and she's like I want to be able to create a better connection with them yeah each of them said what they wanted to do and then they all came up with an individual story that communicated that concept or created a connection with the group of people that they wanted to create a stronger connection with and it was really powerful it was amazing Great that's, people. That's really, that's, that sounds great. I'd love to come to a, a spark where it was all different religious leaders. I know. When I first got that gig, I was like, an amazing group of storytellers, apart from an audience. Yeah, because they're, they're like actors. They, they, they do it all the day, every day. Amazing. So, yeah, yeah. And all together as well. So, it's just really interesting. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, wow. This is about the time when I would normally... Time, yeah, this is the time, yeah, exactly. This is the time when I um, sort of say to people, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? But, I mean, obviously, we've sort of been plugging the spark for the whole way through. Is there anything else that you'd like to No, the only, the only thing I would say is that it's always good to hear from anyone who would like to share a story. And it can be anything really if it's connected to the theme and it's something that you want to tell a lot of people who have told stories in the past who have thought it looks like scary or like something somebody else would like to do rather yeah. than me but once they've done it they've really appreciated it so if you're, if you're listening in London or you're coming to London sometime you can contact Joanna about doing the story you can go to the website which is sparklondon.com or my email address which is joanna at sparklondon.com brilliant and on the theme to our website it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. Likewise. And I'll let you get to your re- rehearsal. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the last thing I ask you to do is just to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye. Thank you very much. It's been a huge pleasure. <laughs> goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, Getting Better Acquainted, have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.